He sent forth his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Psalm 107 verse 20. The message you're about to hear is a straightforward, down-to-earth and insightful teaching by Lady Reverend Adelaide Heward-Mills. Lady Reverend Adelaide serves under her husband, Bishop Dag Heward-Mills, as a pastor at the Lighthouse Chapel International. Lady Reverend Adelaide is a handmaiden of God and is privileged to have been used by God to pastor and to speak the Word of God, both nationally and internationally, to all ages and gender. She has a plethora of messages on many issues, experiences, and situations of life from God's perspective. Get ready to be transformed as you listen to this message by God's anointed handmaiden, Lady Reverend Adelaide Heward-Mills. But this afternoon or this, yeah, this morning, uh, we are blessed once again to have this anointed. <laughs> Hallelujah. And sweet woman of God. I tell you, she's a well of sweet things and uh, refreshing things. And every time she speaks, she deposits things into your spirit that stays with you for a long time and that's the reason why i love listening to her she's one of my best women preachers yeah hallelujah amen and i thank god for her life she's the first lady of the united denominations originating from the lighthouse group of churches that means that she's the wife of bishop daggy Ward mills ladies and gentlemen please rise to your feet help me receive lady reverend adelaide heward mills hallelujah Hallelujah. What an awesome presence to step into. I thank God that we are also finding refreshing in his presence. Amen. Please take your seats. I believe Jesus is Lord. And it's in order to worship God because we are not unbelievers. And we are not coming to a conference that is by might and by power. But we are coming to a conference that is spiritual and that recognizes that marriage is God's idea. It's not the God's idea. Otherwise, the wife will stay here and the husband will stay here and we'll all flow. It's a idea. Neither is it a northern idea. It is God's idea. Amen. Um, this afternoon, I would first of all try to talk about the definition of marriage and then I will go into temperament at a point wherever God leads us to we will pause and continue amen and um, I have I personally know somebody who said um, they got married in their bedroom 
because it's about the two of them and not anybody else but the Bible teaches us that we should be subject to authority so when you are in a country one of the authorities is the law amen so you as a Christian you can't live anyhow and just say oh the Bible says if two shall agree on anything so lady reverend we just agree on anything and then it works it doesn't work that way in the bedroom I know I know the two the couple they got married in the bedroom and they also divorced in the bedroom amen because it is important to be subject to the laws of the land and not to your own laws amen somebody so Ghana also has laws and we as Christians are to be subject to those laws amen And um, because of that, there are different types of laws that come into play in relation to marriage. Amen. We have, first of all, what we know as customary law marriage. Now, under the Constitution of Ghana, the 1992 Constitution, it's called 1992 because it was promulgated in 1992, but it doesn't mean that it has passed. So according to the 1992 Constitution, we have different sources of our law. One of the sources is the Constitution. Sources means where you get your law from or how we come by the laws that govern us. One of them is the Constitution. One of them is customary law. Amen? So customary law is part of our legal sources of law and it is enshrined in our Constitution, customary law. And then we have common law. Common law is often case law. Like, because we inherited our things from the British, we have some of their laws based on common law. And because of that, common law is also part of our laws. Although we may modify some parts of the common law to suit our, our situation. And in common law, they use a lot of case law that in this case, in 1892, it was decided that this. Therefore, you may be in 1992 and that case may still apply to you because the highest court of that land said it was law. So are you understanding or is it difficult? And then we have statutory law. That is the one that parliament passes. And that is passed by... NRCD 114, it means when the NRC was in power, they passed it. PNDC law, whatever. So when our, our democracy came to being, PNDC law 42 was abolished because it was a one man's law telling us what to do. But any law that goes through a government and parliament legislation is a statutory law. All that are part of our laws. And all these laws um, touch on our day-to-day -day lives. Do you understand? So now you as a Christian, you are coming to get married. You can't say because it's God, 
when I enter the church and I marry, it's enough. It's not enough. God says you should be subject to the laws of the land, be subject to the magistrates, be subject to those in authority. So you are ruled by the law. So you can't say, we just invited the Holy Ghost and we are okay. The Bible says that we should be subject to those in authority. Now, Ghana law says that there are different ways of marrying. The first one is customary law. That one, it means that you are marrying by the custom of the place you come from or the place you have elected to marry by their custom. Do you understand? So, because you are marrying under customary law, customary law has certain implications. One of the best implications in the eyes of ungodly men is that in Kashmir law, polygamy is legal. And our laws recognize polygamy. Our laws are not against polygamy. Alright? So, a man can marry many women. But the thing about polygamous marriage under our law is that it is up to infinity. He can marry like Solomon, thousand. There's no limits to a polygamous marriage because it's our custom. And we all know the basis of some of our customs is not God. It's other gods. You see, so it shows in the way the law rolls out. So it says that you can have as many wives as you want if you marry under Kashmir law. Now the law has advanced a bit. At first, Kashmir law marriage was not registered. But now, Kashmir law marriage is registrable. You register it. It's a relatively new thing. But when you register it, you are not saying that my husband or your husband or whoever cannot take more wives. You are saying that I am registering my position as position one. That is what the registration is doing, but it is not barring him from taking other wives because it is legal and Kashmir law is part of our, our laws. So you, a Christian sister, when we ask you, are you my... Oh, we've done engagement. What you call engagement is actually marriage and it's Kashmir law marriage. So then if later the guy goes to marry three more, it does not lie in your mouth to be angry. Because you should have known the type of law you were electing to be under. Position one. Position one. AC. Position eight. Ajwa. That is what you are saying. Then we have, so in Kashmir law, that is when we call it engagement, but the law calls it Kashmir law marriage. And then. In Kashmir law, you see, every law stipulates how the contract comes about. Marriage is defined as a contract between two consenting adults. Not children. So there's a marriageable age. So child marriage is against the law. Do you see, it happens up north, but it is against the law. And it's between two consenting adults who have full capacity. When the law says you have full capacity, it means that your mind was there clear. 
So if you were mentally not right and you went to marry, the marriage can be void ab initio, which means that ab initio means from the initial, before you even start, I say, once you didn't have a, a sound mind. A sound mind is very important to any contract because the person has to willingly. So you have to know that when you were married, nobody forced you. You may say, oh, my pastor said I should do, but the ultimate decision lies with you. A few days ago, a lady was saying that her mother said she didn't know the father, and the pastor just said, this is a good man to marry. And she was going on, getting along in age. So she also decided to marry the man. And also her little sister, her younger sister was getting married. So she married the man not knowing him and the man not knowing her. So by two weeks, World War I had started. <laughs> you know, so some of the things, it is true that somebody may um, recommend somebody to you, but the ultimate decision, you are an adult. And the ultimate decision lies with you. I always tell people, we will come dance at the wedding, but at the end of the day, you are the one going to live by the fire. Nobody else. So before you take that decision, before you say, I do, know what type of contract you are getting into. And then based on the type of marriage you want to contract, the, what fulfills that contract begins to roll out, which in our law is what we call customary marriage, two families coming together. Because in foreign law, two families are not necessary. In fact, what they call engagement is the boy to be with the girl in a nightclub. He gives her a ring, she accepts that's all. It's engagement. But in our customary law, your family has to be involved. They have to go and do knocking. Knocking, that our son has seen a flower in this place and would like to come and pluck it. You go, usually they say with a drink and very little money, just to introduce yourself to the family. And you also get to know the family. Then after that, they will give you the list. We call it engagement list. But as a lawyer, I wish we would call it customary marriage list. Because when we say engagement, it seems to give another connotation, but it's actually customary marriage. Then the two families meet and contract the marriage. So the law requires that. So you can't say you've done engagement because he gave you a ring. If the two families did not meet and the requirements of the customary law are not met, your marriage may be in jeopardy. So some of you, you do knocking. Then wait to turn it, bemanity, knocking. They just knocked on your door or no, you've gone. Do understand? But Kashmir law also has things. Kashmir law is not an inferior law. It has things that should be in place for the contract to be recognized. Do you understand? And we even have breach of promise to marry. A free fire in class Peters. It's a classic case. I'll never forget it. From law school. So many years ago. Because... I think Class Peters promised to marry a free father and then breach of promise, he didn't marry her. So should he pay her compensation? So the law went into all that. But it was customary marriage all right. But what's, it, it, the reason why it's, there's breach of promise is because 
You have made her ward of all other suitors. You have made her prepare and everything, you know. <coughs> Emotional distress, all that, all those things in law are quantifiable. You cause a person emotional distress so that she can't even go to work. A lot of things, they are all in play in the law. Amen? So, customary law must be, customary law stipulates that it's between two families. So, you cannot bypass that and say, oh, I got married under customary law. If a person is serious, he can challenge that. So, Christians need to fulfill all righteousness. An engagement or customary marriage doesn't mean you should be very rich. But whatever is asked of you, you should be able to provide it. I know a classic case. You see, when I ask my husband, I would say, what I'm saying, there's not even one joke in it. A pastor married a girl. And then when they gave him the list, he didn't pay all in Ghana here. And then when he didn't pay all, he was living with his wife all right. He did ordinance marriage, which we'll come to. And then as they were living, after some months, 15 months or so, the parents came for their daughter that he didn't finish paying. So then my husband and I had to finish paying for him so that he could go for his wife. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Pregnant, yes. So you have to fulfill all righteousness. There's also me law for when you impregnate a woman without marrying her. So even Kashmir law um, recognizes the, the honor of marriage. And they say the word tumbra because the law is part of our land. Do you see? And then after you marry, if there's a dissolution of the marriage, there's also things you have to do in Kashmir law to dissolve the marriage. You don't just say, get up and go to your father's house. When you came for the person, was she sitting? Kashmir law demands that the two families meet again to dissolve the marriage. And I think one part has to return the things or return something, either a drink or bring a schnapp or whatever to say, I am not marrying anymore. Now, Christians... And as a church, we try to Christianize some of the things. For instance, we don't believe in alcohol because the Bible says, woe to him who gives his neighbor drink. Do you see? So we often plead with the family to give you money. When we give you money, you can use it for what you like. Or if you ask us for wine, we may add money, but we will bring an alcoholic wine. And the family families often are gracious and they accept that now after Kashmir law there's also another law under our laws called civil marriage or marriage under the ordinance that is the one that you see at first it used to be the one that you sign because usually in our history we don't write anything down we don't write our history down it's always by oral tradition we don't write things but now the law came and said, let's register customary marriage. Because, for instance, where the man is no more, this one comes says I was a wife, this one comes says I was the older. So when it's registered, it will help to know. Do you see? So now, marriage under the ordinance is what we used to call, you've gone to sign. <laughs> okay? And it's called 
civil marriage. In most countries, most jurisdictions are commonwealth jurisdictions. Most commonwealth jurisdictions have the same type of law, which is common law. That is why when you pass the bar in Ghana, you can easily, after doing a, one exam, practice in England because the laws are the same. You can practice in Kenya, Nigeria, because we are all commonwealth countries and we all come under the common law. So if you have to learn common law in England, it's the same thing, case law and all that, so you know what you are doing. So in most commonwealth jurisdictions, marriage under the ordinance prescribes that a certificate must be acquired from the local or municipal authority, granting a three-month period during which a couple must be married after their names have been published at the municipal or city council. I think we don't say city council anymore. What is it called? AMA. But in another town, it's SAM, like Secondita Credit. So whatever the municipal authority's name is. So you don't have to travel to Accra to be recognized by the law. We have city councils or municipal councils everywhere. Okay. So after your name has been published for three weeks, then after that, if there's been no caveat, you can marry. Now, there's a legal register that the church or the municipal authority may have. And then you will sign that register. And then you can say that you are married. Now, even civil marriage, there's two types. One is when you go to AMA, or the registrar comes to where you are to marry you. The registrar being there is a person designated by the state for marriages. So he takes you through the vows. I've been to marriages like that. There's no Jesus, there's no Christ, because it's secular. It's a worldly vow. That's yes, I take this person, whatever, whatever, then you are married. Some people bring a priest there so that he can bless it, so that God would have a say in it. And some people too, they are married by the register, they are okay with it. They don't see the necessity of God's representative. That is your own choice. All right. So even under the ordinance, then we have marriage in church, where you must also have publication of bans for three full weeks. Because people who have been married already cannot marry again. And that crime is called bigamy. And it is under Act code, uh, Criminal Code Act 29 of Ghana. It is a crime. And when it is done, you have to go to prison. But I remember that when our lecturer taught us, he said the judges themselves are guilty of bigamy. Therefore, they are not often able to rule on bigamy. Okay? So, bigamy is that you are somebody's husband, you are somebody's wife already. And then you are going to contract a new marriage when you have not dissolved the first marriage. Sometimes people say that, oh, they haven't lived together for a long time. But have they had the divorce certificate? Have they had the divorce certificate? Are they legally divorced? If it's death, you can contract a marriage. But if the person is not dead and is alive, even the Bible says that person is still your spouse. You see, the sanctity of marriage in God's eyes. In the New Testament, they were talking about the lineage of Jesus, and they said Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. They didn't say David's wife, New Testament. 
They said Uriah's wife because in God's eyes, he was still Uriah's wife. You know, so marriage under the ordinance, it is important that the bans are announced. I have been invited to cut a cake at a wedding and uh, it was promised to be a very splendid wedding. That's all I knew. So I went to the wedding. As soon as the service began, people had come with gallons of palm oil to pour on the bride. Because they said that the bride is marrying somebody's husband. A lot of guns speaking, quarrel. Hey, it was no easy. They came dressed like wedding, hats and everything, holding bags, but in the bags was palm oil. So we called the wedding off as the couple to go and fulfill all righteousness and then come back. I remember on one occasion, or more than one, some people would come and say, the lady reverend, this man, I was house hunting with him on Thursday. And on Saturday, he says he's marrying somebody else. Yes. And then we've had to caveat it. They've had to decide what they want to do. If they want to still marry, they must do the right things. So people are divorced. They want to marry again, but they have not done the right thing. You have to go through a divorce. It's not every time that it takes so long. When both parties are not contesting, it may not take so long. When they are not fighting over child custody, it may not take so long. When they are not fighting about how property should be shared, it may not take so long. But some people start dating people when they are not divorced. They are separated, but they are not divorced. And they are dating people. According to the laws of the land, it is unacceptable. So it is better to fulfill all righteousness than to have all this mix up and mess up. You know? And who knows? You may be the next person, the same man may divorce. And he may also go about it the same way. So, you know, we have to know that it is biblical to be subject to Romans 13. Romans 13 verse 1. Romans 13. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Verse 2. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For, three. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Would thou then, that, then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. Verse 4. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. So you may think that the ruler is an unbeliever. But he doubles as God's minister to, to minister law. Because God is not the author of confusion. And God believes in the law. Now, in a wedding... What is required? What is required is just two consenting adults by law who have agreed that they want to marry, who have had their bans published, and who have signed the register. In the law, there's nothing like there must be a wedding. The law does not stipulate that. 
You want to celebrate the marriage. So wedding is actually a celebration of the marriage, but it's not a legalization. The only legal part of that ceremony we all attend is the signing of the register. Everything else is fanfare. And the Lord does not recognize that. It may recognize it as evidence that you got married, but the true evidence is the certificates, which must be signed. And that's why he's signed with two witnesses. And many, many times, the couple are not interested in the certificate. They are interested in the ceremony. But the certificate is actually the legal aspect of the marriage that you are contracting. And if one day the man says, I don't have a wife, you'll say, what? These are wedding pictures. You'll say, yes, wedding pictures is good, but it's circumstantial evidence. Bring real evidence. You produce a certificate and it shows that you have married. Okay? And then, why do Christians come to church? They don't need to, according to the law, but because they are Christians, they want to acknowledge God in what they are doing. Amen? Proverbs 3, verse 5, I believe. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Proverbs 37, verse 5 or so, says that commit your way unto him. Trust also in him, and he shall bring. So, how can you do something with God and you don't commit, you don't call him, there's no prayer? <clears throat> I went to a wedding with my husband many years ago, and it was a wedding of my relative. My husband said, Mommy, I've traveled a lot and I've seen many things, but I've never seen a posh wedding like this before. Never. My husband said, I mean, poshness for poshness. I've not seen a wedding like this before. Hey, it was at some seaside, some horses were galloping. There was a golf course. Some, when we were leaving, he said, Hey, I've said I've been to wedding like this one. But at that wedding, there was not even one scripture reading because the couple don't believe. They rather came to read the sayings of Gandhi. Yes, Mahatma Gandhi and all these Socrates and all these wise people because they believe that they are intellectuals and that they have to chant their way to intellectualism. So, and even the bride stood somewhere and the man stood somewhere and then they read Gandhi, Socrates and all these philosophers. That's what was read. And then after that, they released a couple of white doves into the sky. My husband said, hey, I've been to weddings, but this one. <laughs> it came to pass that the wedding is over as I speak. The marriage is over as I speak. So what do you build on? So that is the reason why we involve our pastors. In our and all this... It's in the marriage counseling manual, fundamentals of marriage. Because people don't understand. Although they contract marriages, they don't understand what they are doing. And you are subject to the laws of the land. Amen. Amen. You, your marriage, you don't want God to say anything. You don't want a prayer. You don't want to come into his presence. It doesn't have to necessarily be a big wedding. It doesn't necessarily have to be even in church. We sometimes contract marriages in the church office, especially if you get pregnant before you marry. We don't bring you to a big church to have a white wedding. 
We don't do that because a little living leaveneth the whole lamp. And we have to have some discipline. I mean, you don't just allow anybody to live anyhow. So, yes, we will bless the marriage. I'll go and give birth and come. So, even the office, you don't do. Okay. The head of the marriage school says they don't do that anymore. Ah, okay. So, go and give birth and come. Because sometimes, even when you are pregnant, the man may leave you, right? <laughs> so, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Why do you acknowledge him? And he shall direct. Which means that if you don't acknowledge him, direction too becomes a problem. But you see, you feel that you have found each other. Now that we found love, what are we gonna do? It's like when I look into your eyes, you are enough for me. He is not enough for you. It's only Jesus who is enough for you. He is not enough for you. She is not enough for you. Amen. Now, when you marry under the ordinance, you can, because our Kasri law recognizes engagement, you can't also just go and do wedding. The law will say you are married. But as a Christian, in order to fulfill all righteousness, you need to do the family one first. That is our belief. But if you go to court, they'll say, oh, yes, you're married. you say, oh, I didn't have parental consent. Well, marriage under the ordinance does not ask you for parental consent. But why would you marry without parental consent? When Rebecca was going to marry, her brothers blessed her. said, be thou blessed. Be thou a mother of a million, a million. Her family blessed her. Why? Because she married from home. You, you say that the love you have seen, we haven't seen it before. So you are going without all these things. It's not advisable. Even if your parents are unbelievers, they don't agree. There are many ways of getting them to agree. Do you see? Prayer, fasting. I'm talking about a road I've walked on. Prayer, fasting, and then by the time the time gets, God would have opened the doors. Prayer, fasting, wisdom, going to see people that they listen to, and taking the person as a negotiator. After all, in the UN and things, they are always negotiators. So you get the negotiator, the pastor, the this, the that, the that, to negotiate for you so that you can leave home with a blessing. It is important. Now, in Ghana, sometimes people marry somebody under the order, uh, customarily, and then goes to take another woman and weds her. <laughs> then we say that, oh, maybe he married, the first person he married was Ya, and the second person he married was Efe. So now Ya was married under Kashmir law, but Efe, no, the wedding she did, her trail was like from here to the end. The man married Efe and married her under the ordinance. So we all think that Efe is really blessed and her marriage is superior. But I have news for you. Efe's marriage is not marriage and she's not a wife wow. under the law. Because although Kashmir law recognizes polygamy, the next marriage must be polygamous and not a different type of marriage. So you are saying that he has made you missus. In the eyes of the law, you are not even a girlfriend. You were never married. 
That's why I kept telling you the ceremony is not what the law is looking at. The only important legal part of your marriage is the certificate. In law school, the way I made myself remember this principle was that the type of marriage you contract first shows what follows. So if you contract customary marriage and you marry the same person under the ordinance, the law will recognize it. The same person. But if you marry customarily and you go and marry another ed better educated woman under the ordinance, that woman is not a wife. She's just moving with you in life. It's okay. Wow. <laughs> but she's not a wife. She's not a wife. If you marry under the ordinance first, you married here, yeah, and then you seek to marry Efe customarily. Efe's marriage is illegal and non-existent. Because the first marriage is based on the Bible, and it says one woman, one husband. That is what marriage under the ordinance is. That's why I said that every marriage has its way. So the customary marriage, two families, whatever, under marriage under the ordinance, it originated from the Bible. So one man, one woman. You signed it. You see, and the law is saying that when you were signing, you were an adult who had full capacity. So it, they didn't put a gun, thank you. So it does not lie in your mouth to now come and try and contract customary marriage after the ordinance marriage. But if indeed your first marriage is customary, then that one, if it's marriage to you, is legal. Because your first marriage allows you to be polygamous. So it's the first type of marriage that determines what happens after. Please, is it making sense? So when you want to divorce, why is it that you go to court? You go to court because it is the law that married you, not the church. The church married you spiritually before God, but the law married you. So if you are going to dissolve, you go back to the law. And the law also has things. And because our laws, uh, common law, was based on the Bible, they did, they did not easily give in to divorce. They will say, you have to prove. You have to prove that the marriage has broken down beyond, beyond, not reasonable doubt, beyond reconciliation and irretrievably something, I've forgotten. It cannot be retrieved. So irreconcilable differences, thank you. Your differences, not that you shouldn't have differences, but they are irreconcilable. They cannot allow. And many times, even the judges will send you back okay. and say, go and think about this divorce properly. Sometimes the judges will tell you, from your pleadings, your petition, I can see that you have two little children. You have the, the judge is not a pastor, but she's telling you that this thing that you are doing, go and think about it. And then also people even elect to have their divorce in camera, in chambers. Because when they come out, you see, because you have to prove, you start to say things. My wife does this, she's this, my husband does this, she's this. By the time the divorce is over, there's so much bitterness and acrimony because you have to prove. So improving, everybody's outdoing the next person. And then it becomes a beast. And sometimes even the children after that, if the divorce is granted, it's another case 
for custody. He said, I should have custody. The, the lady will say, he doesn't have a home to have custody. Then quarrels. Hey. That's also good. Then after that, alimony. The woman you married, the spouse you have, you are supposed to maintain her. You don't just leave a woman, you've gone. It is supposed to be according to who earns more. So actually, alimony is not just for women. If the woman is wealthier, she should also look after the man. But it's not known. <laughs> and you maintain her. You maintain her. You maintain the children. Because you have wasted her time, his time. You have set her back many. But I know even cases in this church, the judgment has been given. The men do not comply. They are busy servicing the new relationship. But I think, you see, God sees all these things. So, I don't know. We are, we are some way. Anyway, so that is marriage under the ordinance. And then lastly, the other marriage law that plays in Ghana is Islamic law. Under Islamic law, so the judge... We learn all these three forms of marriage in law school. So the judge, depending on the type of marriage you have contracted, will judge according to that. So if a Muslim marries four, he has not gone against the law he has elected to be under. But you, under the ordinance, if you marry four, you are bigamous. Because Christianity... <laughs> so, in Islamic law, you marry, and you are allowed to have as much as, as many as four wives. But I hear that the Quran says if the wives agree to stay together, whatever. But I know that in Islamic law, divorce is very easy. You say four times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce, and it's finished. But in marriage under the ordinance, it's not easy. That shows you that there are two distinct things. Two different things. God's view is totally different. Amen. Now you, a Christian, you say you have met a man you love. He's an allergy. And because of the four-wheel drive he will give you, you have married him fully. You have elected not to choose the Bible, but to choose the Quran. And you have elected for the Quran to direct your marital affairs. That is the election. And I think as a choice, you are saying, Jesus, under you is too hard. But under the Quran, I've got a man who can provide for all my needs. There's no Christianity without suffering. There's no Christianity without suffering. So sometimes you suffer for Christ's sake. People are coming, but they are not Christians. So what will you do? Sometimes, when the people are getting on in age, I said, so can you not pray for his salvation, for God to save him? Indeed, indeed, real. God to save him. So that there can be a change. I mean, even in this church, I know one or two who have married Muslims. Yeah. And when they finish, they come, Lady Reverend, it's not easy. Somebody came and said, I've been in the diaspora for five years. I said, where have you been? Said, Man, I married Lady Reverend Beatings, five years. I returned home. I said, anyway, God is merciful. 
So please, let us learn the forms of marriage. Let us educate our people properly. Let us do the legal requirements. Because according to Romans 30, you are subject unto the law. And the ruler or the law, whatever governs you, has been put there by God. Now, having talked about marriage, what also happens legally is that maybe one of the spouses departs this earth. Based on the marriage you have contracted, some of the things are, you know, if you are not a wife and you did a major white wedding, in fact, if your reception was at Parliament House, which doesn't happen, but anyway, and then the, your spouse dies, you are not a wife. The only right you have is your children. Is your children. In Ghana, there's no illegitimate child. In the old laws, there were illegitimate children, and they were entitled to nothing. But the world over now recognizes that it's not the child's fault. So your child has a right if the man did not make a will. And if the child is not above 18. Of course, everything you say in law, there may be another side to it. So I would say, generally speaking. So the wife has a big percentage of the estate. Then the existing children, including the outside children, also have a right. Under intestate succession law. But where the man shares and says that, this goes to my wife, this goes to my children, and then you, by no fault of yours, you are an outside child, and they give everybody 15%, and you, they give you 0.05%. That is the man's will for you. It is that. You may be able to come and contest that you are younger, you need more money, but you see all the complications. You know, all the complications. So, at the end of the day, you see that God is God. And what he says is what he says. I know the parliament was trying to pass a new law to say that if you are a common law wife, you should be recognized. Common law wife is you have lived with a man, uh, you look like you contracted a common law marriage, but you didn't. And they were trying to recognize that. But no parliament has been bold enough to pass it. It's always been before them. I don't know now if it's been passed. I'll have to check that. So please... Let's fulfill all righteousness. Let's do the right things. Even if you are abroad, you know that Kashmir law is part of our law. Do the right thing. Because in our law, you don't have to be present physically to contract the marriage. Actually, in our law, it's like the marriage is not about you. It's about the two families. That's why you can be in London and then we, we, we marry for you. You know? So that is basically what it is. And don't be in a hurry to do some ramshackle arrangement that later on you will regret. So let's do the right things. And also, the church premises must be registered. The place where you are going to contract the marriage must be registered. And the marriage officer must be registered. So don't go and get hold of any itinerant preacher and say he's a man of God, so he will marry me. I met a lady who married... A, a prophet and um, the marriage went sour after about four weeks and then she came to see me and she was saying that 
she had married the man. So I said, so when was the date of your marriage? And she told me. I said, so do you have a copy of the certificate? She said, Reverend, we married in the church. I said, yes, you married in the church, but did you not sign anything? She said, hey, now that you are saying, we didn't sign anything. She showed me the pictures. Hey, it wasn't easy. Major dressing. So she was a customary law wife, but she was not a wife under the ordinance. And so because of that, the divorce was also very easy, and she wasn't able to claim anything much from the man. I don't know what, but it was all. And I said, are you sure you got married? She said that, oh, he said the vows were not necessary, so we just, I couldn't believe it, but... It is real. Yeah. So please, let's do the right things. God directs us for our own sakes. It's not that God wants to make things impossible or life difficult, but he wants us to do the right. So please, the premises must be registered and the marriage officer must be registered. Sometimes, if the marriage officer is registered, then it may not matter where you contract the marriage. Do you understand? But we need to know all this. So is your church registered? All these marriages you are contracting. <laughs> is your church registered? And it doesn't take much to be a registered marriage officer. You apply to the attorney general's department. I, no, registrar generals. And then they just check you out. And then they, I was going to say ordain, but they, they give you recognition and your name is listed on the marriage officer's register. You know, These are some of the reasons why sometimes I want to practice law again for the sake of the church, the body of Christ. But I don't have time because I feel that, especially charismatics, we do so many wrong things. Not because we want to, but because we don't know. So everywhere we are contracting our marriages, the way we are contracting, it's like there's no knowledge, you know? I have a vision, I pray that one day, God will let it pass, right? I have a vision of setting up a, a firm that will say, church work is all I do. Then I will do just church work and help God's kingdom. So pray for me. Amen. So that is the definition of marriage. Now, I am going to give um, a few minutes with my bishop's permission for you to ask a few questions before I go into temperaments, okay? So as far as the church is concerned, you are not married unless you have, you have done it in church, or? I mean, one way or the other, we as pastors should know. And if you married before coming to join the church, you must tell us. And also, one thing Bishop Fabian has done over the years is when couples live together, they have become common-law couples. We call them, we take them through marriage counseling, and we marry them. You know, because most of them join the church from the world. And so we can regularize their marriages. That's one way in which you help people. So you regularize their marriages, they sign and everything, and they are married. And sometimes it's a mass wedding to cut down on costs because the issue is not really a wedding, but the issue is to regularize your stay. Because some of them, they've lived with the man for 20 years. Onye 
So then we take them through all the necessary counseling and then we bring all of them together. You should see it's a beautiful sight with their wedding gowns and all. We even teach them about sex, although they've been married for 20 years. And then, and then we have a wedding and we bless their marriages and then God continues with them from there. Amen. If you put up your hand, a few questions before the next session. A mic. Thank you, Lady Rev. I have a son, my sister's son, I brought for God. The parents died young. I was the one that stood for them. Okay. Yeah, I was the one that was the mother at the marriage. Everything went on as you have said. They've been together for almost 17 years. And now the, my son was caught with another woman. And the lady said, and now for the past three years, we've tried to talk him. He said he, he won't marry again. He's gone to the ladies' uh, people. But the pastors at that church said, the lady should not come and take her things. But everything points to the fact that it's, it's over. So what I told my daughter-in-law is that I am the mother. My son will not come back. But the parents and the uh, pastors or other church that let the man bring your things. And I know he will not bring the things. So now it's a problem and um, I don't know what to do. So the lady has been counseled by the church not to come for her things, maybe yes. because they are against divorce. Yes. And they are, they are waiting for the man. But they are not married. They've just no. been living together. No, 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 no. Proper marriage that you have talked about. Oh, okay. Cast Maria was the mother. Cast oh, Maria. Okay. And then the church. And they have two kids. So can you not get your son to do the right thing by I proper dissolution of the marriage? For the past three years, he has refused to listen. Meanwhile, he was at fault. There are evidence, not circumstantial, that having an affair with the lady, the lady brought it on the WhatsApp, and the younger wife caught them. With younger that wife. One. She's not a wife. No, 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 no. The uh, younger sister of the real uh, wife okay. caught my son and the maid in their matrimonial home. So is that why the marriage is breaking? Yeah, that's, and the lady um, quarreled with the, with the man, with my son, and he said that he has me disgraced and uh, that he won't marry. So I asked the lady... Sometimes the brothers, I don't understand, you've been disgraced. Yes. Your logic is so different. You've been disgraced. And then but you know, if the woman... The, if the woman begs him, will the marriage be... So he rather who is at fault if he's begged. Yeah, so the marriage So stand? the woman had come to beg and I advised her, even to the point of being her, to advise the lady to go back to the parents' house. And I told the parents that, my son will kill your daughter. Come for her. Now there's everything that it won't work again. So is the daughter still staying in the house? No, no, he's gone for the past one month. But ah. the pastors are saying that, don't go for your things. Let the man bring. And he won't bring. Why won't he bring? Is your son uncontrollable? Yeah, I can't. He's not old. He's now around 40, and there's nothing that I can do. So but in law, we have something we call desertion, which is after some years, if two of them agree, the marriage can be because they have not lived together for so long. Then after some further years, 
If one person agrees, it can, it, the court will allow it without any discussion. So how long has it been since? They have not been together as man and wife for four years, I mean sex-wise, but they've stayed together and the lady left a month ago. Just a month ago? Yes, to the parents' house. And I was telling the mother and father, come for her things. Because we say whatever we will say. He will agree. Get your son to do what is right. I, I can't, Lady Reverend. I have tried my best, and God knows. I've gone to so many. Even when the pastors come, he even insults them. Okay, and then leave it as it is. Okay. If so, the lady will not come for the things, leave it as it is. I'm sure that the thing itself will play out okay. as it should. Thank you very much. Because everybody is trying and he's not listening. <laughs> yeah. It's not easy, oh. Uh, lady Rev. Hello? Lady Rev, God bless you. I think the lady should have her say first. Okay. After that, Sister Betty, yes? Yes, um... God bless you so much for the information you are sharing. Can you hear? Is it the mic? Is it the mic? Okay, Hello? please speak. I'll come closer. Hopefully I'll hear. Yes, Lady Reverend, I said God bless you so much for the information you are sharing. Thank uh, you. There's something you said that caught my attention, and that uh, people are marrying in churches uh, whilst the ministers probably are not um, recognized as uh, people capable of marrying. So my question is, if... Um, We've been married in a church, but the minister is not recognized. Is my marriage recognized and what do we do? Thank you. I think that if there's no trouble, your marriage is recognized. <laughs> but if you fall into trouble, then it becomes... So I would say the best person to advise you will be at Registrar Generals. But when you go to Registrar Generals too, you can talk to just anybody, but you'll be better off talking to a marriage officer or a lawyer. Because in Ghana, everybody pretends they know. Yeah. And then they give you wrong information. So you do well, to, but I'll have to go and read again whether, you see, hmm. in law, we have different things that annul a marriage. One is void ab initio. It means before you start, Christ not there. Then one is void, and then one is voidable. So I have to see. In which category this one falls? Void up initial, yeah, there's no way out. But voidable means if one person says they don't want the marriage, it can be voidable. Do you see? And then void means uh, there's a problem, but it can be solved. But void up initial is the worst of all the three voids. Do you see? So I have to see where the marriage officer bit for sometimes it's just an administrative something. So it's voidable. If one partner comes and says, because there was no marriage officer, I'm out, or I'm out. And they say, what's your evidence? There was no marriage officer. Because one partner has said it may stand, that's voidable. Do you see? So, hmm. I have to go and see where it lies. Lady uh, Reverend, I want to know if um, uh, you mentioned that customary marriage is between, um, actually between two families. Um, is it the immediate family or the extended family? If the parents agree, for instance, and the extended family don't agree, can it still be contracted? I think it depends on the custom of the people. And unfortunately, I'm not so good at custom, but I think that maybe family can be immediate parents and extended family, or without. 
I don't know what the custom is. It depends on the custom of the people. You know, so I'm not so good at the custom itself of a, an area, a tribe. And so it depends on what the tribal custom or where you are, the custom. In Ashanti, the mother is irrelevant. But I think girls too. Girls is the women who marry for the people, not the men. Or? And then with the Akans or the Ashantis especially, it's just snap and one piece of cloth. That's the worst. <laughs> but in other jurisdictions, like in Zimbabwe, I went, a young man, he's just finished school. He has not earned anything, but he wants to marry because he's 20-something, he read law. The mother said, I will help you marry. When we went to ask for the list, they asked that we bring $10,000. 10,000, I mean, South Africa, they forget it. So when we started our church, a lot of the young people don't marry because they cannot afford the lobola. And then I had to go and negotiate this, shed, was it this year? In Zimbabwe, till end of last year. So when I said that, look, in my country, it's not this, I said, hey, your country, what do you do? That's six pieces of cloth, they couldn't believe. <laughs> it's like we are joking. 18 cows. 18 cows, they said a number of cows, and I said, you know, we will buy the cows. They said, no, you don't determine the price of the cows, we do. So it's not what you go to the market and go and, I mean, it was a whole evening. I was with Lady Pastor Shelley, begging this. At the end, it came to $7,000. Not wedding, no. Just to take the girl's hand. And they said that the 3,000 left, he will be paying small, small during the marriage. So every tribe is different. And the South is terrible. And they said that the girl has gone to school. Okay, her father is in Mugabe's government. She has gone to school in England. She did law. She's a lawyer. So all that. So her father is a, a, a prominent man, maybe 3,000. She did law, 4,000. So by the time you know, 10,000. I was hoping that law would come to Ghana. <laughs> so a lot of them don't marry. A lot of them marry and they owe because you pay forever. You pay forever. You know, so, and then also one thing I forgot to say, I don't know whether it's part of, it's not part of registration as such, but when you marry, the law stipulates that within 48 hours you should have consummated the marriage. That means you should have had sex within 48 hours. So if within 48 hours that does not happen, your partner can come and say, the marriage is void ab initio. Ab initio, before it started. So because marriage under the ordinance is based on the Bible, they take sex very seriously. So encourage your brides to flow on the first day, the second day, within 48 hours. I know somebody personally who used that to divorce. I, I knew both couples who were Christians. I know. And then I said to her, why, why? Don't do that. She said, oh, he knew. He knew he had issues and he didn't tell me whatever. And then the man told me that the doctor had said that he was too stressed. And so his performance had gone down, blah, blah. But anyway, the lady left and uh, Today, the man is married with two biological children, so you can't really tell what 
So the consummation of the marriage is very important. Look, family law is a, a very deep area of law. I mean, the things you have to talk about and you have to prove in court, you know, was there penetration to what degree? What happened? Was it, hey, you know a lot of, and family law, the boys shout in the class a lot. They are happy. It's law, but they are just happy. <laughs> so anyway, last question. Yes, Justin. Ah, okay, last two then. Where, oh, last three. I'm too magnanimous. Okay. Yes. Lady Reverend, please, what advice will you give to a couple that has done a customary kind of marriage, gone to the church to um, bless it, but they didn't sign? And I think that church too was not registered. What advice? They should just sign. They should go and sign. They should go to AMA. It will be pasted on the board for 21 days. If there's no caveat, they just sign. That's all. So that they are under the ordinance. Okay. They are still married, but... Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, it will just say that you are married fewer years than you are because you registered later, so they will count from the time of registration, but it's better than nothing. So please, especially charismatics, let's register our places of worship. Let's register our offices. If you come for thousand dollars, I'll record, I'll register each of you. I'm lying. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yes, All protocols observed. My name is Darlington. I'm from Nigeria. Mommy, okay. please, I want to know something. You talk about. But why are you school. telling us where you are from? It's not necessary. Okay, I just, it's just an identification. <laughs> well, coming to customary marriage. Because I can see that is one of the major issues we are having in this modern world. You get. For example, now, if I'm schooling in UK or any part of the Western world, and I saw a girl I like so much, do I need to bring her home to my parents' house for them to bless our marriage? Or is it an agreement between both of us to marry there and build our family? If you marry there, yeah. what happens in Africa doesn't matter. Okay. But they say that the law that, you see, we have something we call conflict of laws. The law mm. that regulates you may either be where you live yeah. or where you come from. Okay. So when you marry in London and you didn't do engagement, whatever, it's still marriage. Even okay. when you marry in Ghana under the ordinance, it's still marriage. Okay. But it will have, you will have problems with. So sometimes I even counsel people, if you are marrying a Ghanaian girl, you are a white man, try and do the Kashmir as well. You don't lose anything. You just fulfill all right. But I don't know in Nigeria what is the same Marriage. two families. Yeah, I but think in Africa the, is the point is the mindset. Because you don't know the person that is blessing the marriage. Sometimes at the end of the day, that's where the problem starts. I don't understand. No, I don't understand. Do you understand what he's saying? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, because Come again, explain is, with diagrams. You know, what are you like saying? in my culture, from the Igbo land, mm -hmm. they will give you a wine to go and locate your husband where he is. Maybe They'll give the you a what? To go and locate your husband. as uh, a, Wine. As, so you, the woman, will go and locate where your husband yeah, is? Yeah, yeah. A, a pound wine. Do you get it? So on the process of doing that thing, there are some people who, are, who doesn't have good mind. Uh -huh. 
You what understand? would they do? So when you are giving your husband that wine, that's mm-hmm. where the problem starts. Somebody can inject something that you start having uh, problems. Hey, Charlie, it's guess? another level. That's why I'm asking. Like someone like me, to be honest and sincere with you. You don't want to do the Kashmiri part. Because I've seen a lot. But when you tell them, by, they by start Nigeria, you can also marry without being there because it's between two families. Well, do you see? Can do, that. do you see? Okay, so you can do that. Or she can have wine that she's taking, but she won't present. Then somebody else will bring the right stuff. You just use wisdom. But I don't think you should defy the laws of your people. Unless the person you are marrying is also a foreigner. There are many other, how do you say it? But even in England, I've attended weddings, uh, engagements, uh, Kashmir marriage. I've attended because the parents feel that should be done, even though you are marrying in England, which I think is a good idea. In winter, you see them in their cloth and everything, doing ochiami and all that goes. I, I think we have a very beautiful setup in terms of marriage. Yeah. The only thing is that we should bring Jesus inside and we should stop pouring libation to God. That's all. Last person. Yeah, lady Reverend, uh, please, uh, does this uh, marriage that happened, uh, the lady happened to live in London and uh, came down, got married here. Uh, later on, uh, they got to realize that the lady had been married before, but did not disclose that bit to the gentleman. So the marriage doesn't exist. So they also got married. But what happened was that the people who came for the ladies married were contracted. And so... The were what? Were contracted. They were not... Uh, okay. They were not uh, the ladies' family. Mm. So the gentleman later got to know and said, okay, uh, for the marriage to exist, I want you to go back to your family, let them know that the first marriage don't exist. And the lady said no. No, but had she dissolved the first No, she has not. Uh, Then in the eyes of the law, it's bigamy. But then uh, the marriage was done in a church. And and so I've said, it's not the wedding. Okay. (laughs) Once you have married before, you have to dissolve it before you go and marry again. So if you haven't dissolved it, no matter whether church, whether your, your wedding, Michelle Obama is the one who cut your cake, whatever, you are not married. So while she's married to that man, even if things are not whatever, she has no right to marry this new one. So she has to divorce him properly, then she can contract a legitimate marriage. Thank you. Okay. All right. So please. We are having this marriage conference so that you will do the right things and not be found wanting. Amen. Amen. If when we were beginning as a church, our place was not registered, so we did all our registration at AMA, and then after AMA, we'll give you a license to marry. So in that case, we didn't need to have our premises registered. So we went about it that way till we became a registered place where we could have our own register. You know, so there are ways of going around it, but you have to contract the right kind of marriage. There's even emergency marriage. That one is, you have a few days, you just come down, 
and you want to marry quickly, it is often contracted at the registrar generals. And that does not give the three-week notice or the bans, but you go about it in another way. So that's done at registrar generals. So you have to uh, know that it's not called emergency mom in law. It's called something, but I don't remember. Okay? So let's do the right things, and I believe that God will bless us. And if you need more help, the, the, the ministry that contracts marriages is the Attorney General's Department. And the Registrar General's Department, where you register companies and so, is the place where a lot of marriages take part, place, and then AME. So the Registrar General's regulates marriages. Even the certificate churches use, they give it out. So when we were starting to register and to have a register and all that, we actually called a lawyer, a colleague of mine, and she came on a Sunday and taught legally all the marriages, the this, the that, the that, the that, and then we took off from there. So you can also do that. And well, it didn't entail a lot of money, but she was my mate, so I don't know whether. Yes, but a good lawyer, a good Christian lawyer can help you easily. Amen. Okay. Are you ready to move to the next segment? Okay. We want to talk and or continue to talk about temperaments. Temperaments, okay? So Proverbs chapter 30, verse 11. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 11. Are we there? Hmm. Thank you. Please, in your folders, you have a temperament test form. Have you located it? Your kind Bishop Fabian has made it available. But if you didn't register, you won't have it. You see? The registration is not to enrich anybody, but to make things work for you, okay? A temperament is a basic template with which you are created. We were created by God with certain tendencies, natural strengths and weaknesses. There's a difference between temperament and character. In this chapter, you must understand this basic difference. The temperament is God's method of creating variety. Some people are born with natural tendencies for leadership or joviality or whatever other traits. Others are born with a natural tendency to flow along and to be easygoing. This is the basic structure of your emotional makeup. So what is the character of a person? The character is the personality which is affected by the influences of this life. The character of a person is therefore the product of his personality plus all the external influences. Do you understand it? Character is what you are molded to become. For instance, when you are born, you have a temperament. Temperaments are like color of your eyes, of your hair, your height, you inherit all that from your genetic makeup, from your ancestors, from your grandparents. It is the same with temperaments. 
if you come with short fingers, because your great-grandfather had short fingers. You may also come with a temperament of phlegmatism, because your great-grandfather had phlegmatism. So temperament is not something you choose. Sometimes some people say, Lady Reverend, I don't like this temperament, I want the other one. You don't choose. Just like you don't choose the color of your hair, your height, and things like that. You don't choose which temperament you come with. But God, in his wisdom, has made us in so many varieties. And we are saying that temperament is not the same as character. Character is your personality, all right, but your mother has told you the way you talk is too harsh. It's not good. The way you talk, say please, say thank you. Do the, so society, your mother, they've molded you, and that becomes your character. But your temperament is raw as you came. But a spirit-filled temperament is a temperament that has allowed the Holy Ghost to take control, to use the weaknesses and make us better people. Amen? And that is why the Bible says, I think in Philippians 2.13, Philippians 2.13, oh sorry, I said Proverbs 30, but... For it is God who is all the while effectively at effectually at work in you energizing and creating in you the power and the desire both to will and to work for his good pleasure and satisfaction and delight that work is God as soon as you get born again he sends his spirit into you he sends his presence into you and that presence begins to work to change your will, to change your desire. He says, God who is at work in us, both to will. You may will not to be a fornicator, but you may not be able, but the Holy Spirit helps you to will and to do. To will and to do. Some people just live by will, but they're doing, they don't allow the Holy Ghost. It's like, my flesh should always have what it wants. But God is actually at work in us to will and to do. So even when people see you and they say, oh, this woman is so Christian, you should know that it's nothing that you did. It is just the presence of the Holy Spirit working in us all the time to make us what God wants us to become. Amen. So we have temperaments whether we are born again or not. But when you become a believer, we have what we call a spirit-controlled temperament. Which means that although you landed on this planet with all these things, now the mastery of your life is in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is working on you and I and our temperaments to make us more like Jesus and to prepare us for the rapture. Because God is coming for a glorious church, not a church with wrinkles and any such thing. Go back to Proverbs 30. I like to start from there because... Sometimes people feel temperament is secular or something you just came up with. But God knew about it before you and I got here. There's a class of people, call them class number one, who cares their fathers and do not bless their mothers. Continue. There's a class of people who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not washed from their own filth. Class number two. 
Number three, there's a class of people, oh, how lofty are their eyes and their raised eyelids. Group number four, there's a class of people whose teeth are as swords and whose fangs as knives to devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among men. They will eliminate you just now with their tongue. It's enough. So now, the Bible is teaching us that there are four classes of people. Unfortunately, like I said last night, it talks only about the negative aspect of temperament. But there are positive traits of temperament. So the first group, they curse their father and they don't bless their mother because they wonder why they were born unto this imperfect world. They wonder why there's so much sorrow, war, and problems in the world. And they dwell more on that. So they wish they were not born. They are the ones who ask, when Adam and Eve sinned, God cried, you should just have finished the whole creation because life is too some way. <laughs> These are melancholics. They have a negative view on, of life. They are more likely to see gloom and doom more than positive things because that is what they see. They are more likely to be moody. Any small thing, they feel like dying. I'll show you examples of all these four temperaments in the Bible. Any small thing, they feel like dying. So they curse their mother and they don't bless their father. Okay? It is often called the dark temperament because when they are at home, they can bring a very sad ambience to the house. When they are not happy, everything around them should not be happy. Most melancholics, when they are not happy and even you are laughing, they get angry with you. <laughs> they want you to join their pity party. They are people who live within themselves. So when you are married to a melancholic, you may have many sins, but you don't know about it. It is all processed in the factory of their minds. Insults are in their minds. Plans are in their minds. Bad thing, and because they have a negative slant, everything you do, you have a bad intention. You know, you have a bad thought, that's why you did this. You, you, you are not thinking right, that's why you did this. Your motive is not good, that's why. It, when you get married to them, you can get tired. Because everything, you are not good, you are bad, you are this, you get tired. But that is how they came onto this planet. And they are melancholic people in the Bible. Now I've told you just about their negatives. I'll come to their positives. The second generation or class, they are pure in their own eyes. And yet they are not washed from their filthiness. They usually don't ruffle feathers. They don't worry anybody. And they pay the price of peace at any cost. They don't like conflict. So if the husband shouts, he says, okay, let me just do what he says. Even if it's not right, let me just do it. They are often very diplomatic. And they are very nice people. That's why they don't see the reason why they should be born again. The Bible says they are pure in their own eyes. When they look at themselves, they say, but I'm good. What, what, what evil do I do? 
They'll say, me, I mind my own business. I don't like conflict. I don't fight with people. I'm a good person. So why are you telling me that I should be born again? How many of you know all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? So those are the phlegmatics. They are also very laid back. So if you are married to a phlegmatic man and he is not spirit controlled, sometimes you really suffer. You will become poor. Because when he should get up and go out there and fight and achieve, and he doesn't have the edge. <laughs> he is very much in love with the verse that I am content with such things as I have. And does not press on to improve your lot in any way. When he has to correct something at home, maybe the tap is leaking or... He's a nice person, so he will always promise you that he will do it. But you'll be there for three weeks, the tap will be running, the bills will be high, and he hasn't done it. <laughs> then some people come for counsel, Lady Reverend, I don't know whether I am the leader in the house or I am the wife. They say the man is the head. He doesn't do anything, Lady Reverend. He's always sitting there. But usually, we marry our opposites. So if you also marry the choleric, the hotness in the house, it will not be easy. <laughs> so God in his wisdom usually puts opposites together. So the phlegmatic, the Bible says that often he will not do a very risky job. He's likely to be a civil servant, a priest, a teacher, or a diplomat. He will not go to, you know, things that Involve oh, hygiene, you know. I have some of that trait, so I know you don't want. You want peace, you know. And it is said that they are very stubborn, in spite of their coolness. Stubborn in the sense that they don't move with what you are saying. So if you get angry, you climb on top, you come down. As it was at the beginning, it's now and ever shall be, world without end. Let me tell you something. Phlegmatics often marry cholerics. And when the choleric is ranting and raving, going, moving, actually, the phlegmatic has built a peaceful life within the chaos. And it's not moved at all by all that is happening. And honestly, we ask ourselves, what is the fuss about? What? What? But what is the fuss about? We are saying, Nani. Take your time. We'll get there. We'll get there. That's it. We are in the journey. Why do you want to reach across so quickly? If even it takes 10 hours, you both rara. That's the flavor. And I think that when it's in a man, it's more painful. Because the man is supposed to be your head. Phlegmatics are fearful, but it's hidden. They fear a lot of things, but you won't know because it's inside. And fear does not even let them venture into a lot of things. Sometimes they even themselves don't know that they are led by fear. Phlegmatics talk nicely. They choose their words. They don't find it easy to just tell you as it is. So they'll find a way, you know. How can I tell this person this without offending the person? All that is phlegmatism. Now... The next group 
Those with high eyes, they live in cloud nine. <laughs> they are not on the planet with us. That is the sanguine. They are always happy. Every day is a party. Every day. Every day is a party. It is said that they don't save. They blow everything they have. They often like very bright colors. And they are loud. They like to make friends. It is said that if you have a party and you don't invite a few sanguines, the party will not work. Because the, the sanguine is the life of the party. And the sanguine will always be saying, let's have a party. Because life is a party. And they often are very, they have very large appetites, both sexually and in food and everything. You know, and they are very friendly. When they don't know you, they'll become friends with you now. Yeah. Oh, Lady Pastor Maggie. Oh, so that's your name. So what school did you go to? Oh, <laughs> you feel very good about them. When they finish, they move on. They've forgotten your name, <laughs> who you were, what school you said you went to, and you feel, I've met a very nice person. When you go to a party with them, and sanguines will often go and marry the opposite, which is a melancholic, who likes quiet, reserved. So when they go to a party with the melancholic, they will put you here. Then they will go from table to table. Then when they come, the melancholic spouse is very bored. And you left me, and he has not thought about it that he left you. When you are in a meeting with them, and you bring up an idea, they have 45 reasons why it will work. They have very good vocabulary and they are very encouraging. They will tell you, let's do it, Pastor. This project, I believe, is from God. And Pastor, I believe it's going to work. Then the pastor says, okay. So when shall we meet to execute this project? 8 a.m. tomorrow, Pastor. He will not be there. <laughs> he will not be there. They have problem with timekeeping. They get lost wherever they are going. They don't listen to directions. They get lost. That is the sanguine. And because he's so friendly, he can also have a lot of sexual problems. Because he's too friendly with too many people. The next group, have we done melancholics? The melancholic is not that friendly and is reserved. And many times his or her reservation is read by other people as unfriendliness. But they want friends. Just that they are hoping that you will come and be their friend. Because they, they don't have the capacity to come and make a friend. But when you come, they are very glad you came. <laughs> but people look at them and say, hmm, they are very reserved. When they come to a place, very quiet. And all that. But that's how they, and that is why the sanguine is attractive to them. Because he has what they don't have. This person who just comes to the room and, hey, hi, everybody, how, yeah, let's party, let's see. So you don't know, but what you lack is what you are attracted to. Yeah. The sanguine also does not have that reserved, whatever. So yet when he sees someone, oh, so calm, she just sits there, where I put her, I come and find her there. <laughs> he also gets attracted to you. So opposites often attract. Then the final one is the choleric. He is often a great visionary. 
And for him, everything is work. Everything is work. It is said that colleagues are always dreaming about something, moving. They are ahead. They are often ahead of the pack. Ahead, they move. They are visionaries. They build. They are very good businessmen. They are prosperous. So if you are married to them, they will look after you, but they will never be home. The bills will be paid. You will be given money. You will buy clothes. You will go wherever you will go, but probably without them because they will lead their lives. And actually, when they were trying to wrap you and all that, you are a project. So when that project is finished, they have to move on to the next. And that's what you don't know. They also are very raw in their speaking. And unlike the phlegmatic, they are not diplomatic. Guess what? The phlegmatic is attracted to the choleric. And the choleric is also attracted to the phlegmatic because she's nice, she talks gracefully, she uses the right words, and you are also attracted to the choleric, but you haven't seen some before. A whirlwind moving, you the phlegmatic. They say that you are so thick like flame, you don't like to move. So when you see someone, so there, there can be something like this. So you are attracted to that without knowing. So it is said that Opposites attract, and after that, they attack. <laughs> so what makes the person attractive to you then becomes a bone of contention when you marry. Because a melancholic will say, we have planned the budget for this month. Why have you spent all the money? Because when the sanguine goes to town, whatever is nice to him, he will buy. Not thinking about how you will live. <laughs> After that, but the melancholic is not like that. It is said that melancholics are one of the most loyal people you ever find on this planet. When you find them as beloveds, it is you and I. We are moving, they are not thinking about anybody else. So the sanguine will bring more people into their lives, and the melancholic may not like that. The melancholic uses sex as favors. We'll come to that the temperament and their sexual behavior. We'll come to that. So now, Lady River, is it biblical? It is said that the first group was what? Melancholics. It is said that Moses was melancholic. Anytime sometimes I say, God, kill me. Let me die. These Israelites, I can't. I can't live. And in the end, God had to take his life. Because life and death are in the power of the tongue. Everything kill me, everything I'm tired, everything I can't go on, everything, why am I alive? Everything I want to die, that was Moses. Then the second group, who appear in their own eyes, phlegmatic Abraham. That's why he said, Sarah, when we get to this town, you know, there are going to be some difficulties, please. Just say you are my sister, eh? I don't have energy to be expending for things. To the point that Sarah is taken by the king into his bedroom, and Abraham does nothing. That is your phlegmatic Abraham. So I've talked about melancholic Moses, phlegmatic Abraham. What's the next temperament? Sanguine Peter. Sanguines have answers before you speak. When Jesus says, Peter, I'm going to die. Hey! Far be it, you wouldn't die. But Jesus said, Peter, 
Before the cock crows thrice, you will deny. I said, me, me, deny you. It's like the meeting. He will tell you, you'll be there. He won't come. If I were Peter, because he's the son of God and all the miracles he has done, I won't talk. I'll say, that. is there something Jesus knows that I don't know? But Peter has spoken already. He said, Lord, I will never deny you. Hey, I will follow you to the end. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say I am? Oh, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And when Jesus is washing their feet, Peter said, oh, Lord, not my feet. Bath my whole body, all of us. Bath me. Forward, speaking before he thinks. And he surely denied Jesus. Then the choleric is Paul. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? He said, hey, some of you, you think that I'm not powerful, eh? When I come, you will see. You see, you are talking over there that what? Paul has done what? I'll be there. And he said, yes, I'm small in such as so my words are weak. Is that what you think? You Corinthians, I will come there. Then, when he went and met Peter and Co., when the Jews were not there, Peter and Co. will be flowing. When the Jews come, they don't want to greet. And Paul, who was a new convert, said, I withstood Peter and the apostles. I told it to them. You can't behave like that. When the Jews are here, then you are pretending. When the people come, then you are, hey, Peter, you may be the head, but let me tell you, that's not the way. And they are able to endure so many things in fastings often, in reproaches, in necessities, whatever they have said they had to do, they will do. He said, I press on towards the mark. He said, endure hardness. They don't like this type of softies around. Be hard. And yet God used all these for, for the building of his kingdom. Now sometimes when you are one temperament, because you have a certain strength, you despise your partner's weakness. Do you understand? For instance, you may be phlegmatic and you talk well, you choose your words well, and your partner does not. And because that is not your weakness, you despise him for not being like you. But you also have your weaknesses. And it is often said that your weakness is your strength. If you go and marry a choleric woman, hey, she achieves a lot. But when you ask her a question, the way she answers, the way she answers, and the way she puts her work before you, you are not happy. But it's a temperament. Because she doesn't see housework as something to be conquered. They want something that you conquer. Not something that is just there. So the books say that a phlegmatic can come home, a, a choleric can come home and sleep like a lion. He's sleeping. He's not very interested in what is up. What it is is that he is gathering strength for the next project. Everything is with vision. Everything has a purpose. Everything has a reason. That's the choleric for you. So because the person's strength is, weakness is your strength, you despise the person. And that's why we said yesterday that Accept the temperament of your spouse. And accept that it is God who changes us. Amen. Amen. And when you do that, you know that the phlegmatic is not out to get me. 
In fact, if you do a survey, you'll see that that's how he talks to everybody. Everybody. It's only that when you were in love, you didn't hear. But that's how he talks to everybody. I remember when I was in a, the law faculty. By the way, there's a difference between law faculty and law school. Law faculty is where you do your first degree. Law school is the macula. So when I was at the law faculty, then Rollins closed the university for a year. And then before the year that we could be called back, my dad said, the way the universities were being closed and all that, I should go and continue my law abroad. At that time, my husband was not my beloved, but he was my friend. So I told him, this is my father's plan. He says, what are you going to do? I said, my father has bought my ticket, paid my fees, my deposits and all, so I'm going. So you cannot just get up and go like that. The Bible says you are God's garden. Every garden does not do well in every environment. So you don't just get up. Your father says you should go, so you are going. You have to wait on God. And then when you wait on God, you are God's garden. So God will tell you whether this garden does well in the UK or not. But you just get up and then you are going. At that time, he was my friend. So I said, hey, what a revelation. Really, I'm God's garden. Mm. Okay, but anyway, I went, and then he was, my, he was not my beloved. He kept writing to me. Dear Sister Adelaide, has God spoken where you are? <laughs> has God spoken to you where you are? I said, hey, this brother died. Then I would also respond. Then at a point, he wrote to me and said that, some people in Ghana will be very heartbroken. Should you consider not coming back? So I decided not to ask who those people are. But I decided to wait on God and see what God's plan was for me. I was with my sister. She was doing admin and she was two years ahead of me. So it's like the two of us would do the schooling. So as I prayed and all that, then I saw in London those days, everybody who went back slate because there was no fellowship, there were no churches, you know. And he was saying that you don't look for just education. You look for God's will and for whether you will still stand. You don't just go, you know. So then those days, the best we knew to wait on God, you fast and pray and then God leads you. But as we were there, after about two weeks, I saw that the spiritual atmosphere was not good. And even though Victory Church was there, I don't know. I knew that, no, the way things were going, it was not right. Actually, I started to even get sad, not because of him, but because I had friends in Ghana and I wasn't... So I told my dad, I can't be here. I have to go back. My dad said, really, why? I said, oh... I don't think I'll flourish here. So, oh, so I should go for my deposits and everything. I said, yes. So I came back to Ghana. And I came back to Ghana in 1984. Rollins reopened the university and we went back. So when I finished my first degree, then my dad said to go and do the bar abroad. 
So I was going to travel again because in the whole family, I was the first to do pure Ghana like that. So then, at that time, now I had a beloved. This beloved, my father gave me money that I was traveling. So I said, oh, my father has given me some money. So, do you know any nice restaurant where we can have the last supper? <laughs> so, hey, mommy, let me see. I don't have a lot of money. I said, oh, my father has given me money, so we can spend some before I even go. <laughs> so he said, okay, Ambassador Hotel, Rickshaw. Hey, are you sure your money will be there? So my father has given me, it will be enough. So we went. And because he hadn't paid and I was going to pay, I thought that he would be humble in the conversation, but there was no such thing. <laughs> so I told him, well, I'm going, but my dad says I can be called to the bar in the UK. So whatever. He stops eating. Then let's break up. So, oh, why are you saying this? Eh, no, because. If you go abroad, I'm also here. We'll all be under different influences. And then when you come back, I won't know you anymore. I said, ah, what are you saying? Said, yes, 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 me, I don't think you should go. And da, da, da. Those days, I didn't know about temperament. <laughs> hey, by the time we left the dinner table, I was crying. God, being faced, but now when I look, I said, ah, why didn't I see this colorism? <laughs> so anyway. Then he actually pleaded with me, oh, mommy, you should come back. You see, I think that it's God so that you come back. You, you can pray about it, but that's what I think. But he was very, uh, what, negotiating. Recently, I heard him preaching first level. He told me, choose or whatever. And then just, <laughs> but it's okay. You have the mic now. <laughs> so it came to pass. And I went, I came back to Makola and all that. After Makola, my father said, oh, you can go on holiday to the States. So I told my husband, I'm going on holiday to the States. Another dinner. This time I think he paid more, Christine uh, Rose or something. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> then I was going to the airport. And he said, so when are you coming back? I said, oh. We just finished the exams. I think it was June 30th. It's June. The call to the bar is in October. So I should be back by September. You are coming by, back by September. When we are supposed to be getting married, you say that you've got a student's permit to work there, and then you are coming back. I said, ah, but I'm coming back to be called to the bar. Why should you come in October? Would you have worked enough to say for us to marry us? Hey. What type of <laughs> a whole agenda? This. So my father came. My father always took me to the airport. My father said, "So you will come back in September." I didn't tell him that I had been faced, but I didn't say anything. So as I was there, September, I thought, "Oh, let me go and get my ticket, whatever." Those days, landline. My beloved called me where I was. So, have you changed your ticket? Ticket change. You now in have you changed your ticket? I said, oh, not quite. You see, I want us to get married. Me and my husband, he used to buy things, even in student day. He's bought mugs, sauces, saucepans. He said, we are going to do business at medical school. He went to buy a grill. We will make a kebab at Christian events. Save for our marriage. Hey! <laughs> 
I didn't see the project. <laughs> he went to London. He got some award. He came back. He had a big work. I said, what is this? He said, ice cream maker. When we make the kebab, then we also make ice cream. Then we... I came back, he will show me. You see, now I've bought five marks, all covered with graphic. And say, <laughs> this marriage that we have. <laughs> but I tell you, I didn't process like I'm doing now. It was just, oh, yo, oh, okay. So he made the test. So where will we go? We'll grill it ourselves. Don't you know where they buy meat? We'll buy meat, we'll season it. Whenever we hear the event, we'll go there. <laughs> It was all plans and visions. <laughs> and I didn't. So it's like, he is collecting the things for us to marry. So you too, when you go, try and work a bit. You say, your father said, you should be happy. You have a permit, but you will not use it. Because how? We are going to get married. You have to. So have you changed your ticket? No. Let me tell you something. You cannot come to Ghana in September. And when I look back, all that I did, after I hung up the phone, then I would sit by the phone and cry. Uh, that's my response. <laughs> but I'll comply. So in the end, I came back in December. I'm telling you. I came back in December. Having saved, I bought bed sheets, this, that, that, and I came. When I came, I said, huh? So what did you do? Wait. <laughs> I have to give an account. <laughs> And so, in the church, we were the first to marry. So when he says that, you don't marry with wisdom, uh, with money. You marry with wisdom. You marry with little. He knows what he's saying. Yeah. But you see, it was a whole project. It was a whole project. That is the choleric for you. That is the choleric for you. Do you see? So then, that temperament will lead you far. But that same temperament, you will say that, why is he saying what he's saying in the way he's saying. So it is not our duty to change people. It is our duty to help them change, yes, but not to insist that you should become a phlegmatic like me. You should become a choleric like me. You should become a melancholic like me. It is said that melancholics often choose martyrdom, things that involve sacrifice. That's a melancholic. And also, they don't have a lot of friends, but they are faithful to that one friend. You see, I had a friend like that. I met her in the university. Hey, Friday we are going to Christian fellowship. Then she'll say, I bought this uh, blouse. I bought one for you. I said, so that, was, so that we wear it together to the blouse. Ah, I don't feel like wearing that. <laughs> Very faithful, everything together. It's like the friendship, no. I said, hey, the person has taken it to another level. You see, let's just say that next week during our retreat, we'll go together. I used to go, but I don't know that we are a twosome doing some retreat. <laughs> Melancholics are very faithful. But when they marry you, their standards are very high because of their own faithfulness. So they expect you to be like that. And usually you will be a sanguine. You are not like that. So then... They are angry inside. When you ask them what is wrong, they say nothing. Everything they cry. 
Everything is sad. Everything is gloomy. When they have a marriage problem, they see that the world has come to an end, that nothing will work. If you tell them, God will give you beauty for ashes, they say, I'm holding the ashes. <laughs> they see the ashes more than even the beauty. That is the melancholic. But faithfulness and loyalty is one thing they have, which the sanguine does not have. The sanguine depends on happiness, what it is moving with, but the melancholic will be faithful to you and expects the same faithfulness. Now you have married a sanguine. How can he do one man, one friend? Hey! for Some of you, you are like that. Your husband is your only friend in this world. And sometimes the husbands get tired and say, look for other friends. Because you don't have any other life. And when that happens, you're always waiting for him. He should come from work. He should take you here. He should, hey. It's too much. It can be suffocating. Amen. So this is the introduction to temperaments. And... Uh, These are the four minutes. Now, it is said that most of us have two temperaments, the primary and the secondary. So one will be more dominant than the other. Now, Lady Reverend, what does it mean to have a sanguine husband or wife? I've said a lot of it, but they are emotionally warm. So you will often enjoy an emotionally surcharged relationship. And it is said that they, both, they possess the rich emotions of the four basic temperaments. They are friendly, enthusiastic, feeling-oriented persons who can easily be moved to tears by the sad mood of their friends or to joy and excitement by the happiness of others. But all those emotions don't last. They are happy, they are outgoing, they are talkative, like I said. They are stimulating. The weaknesses, they lack discipline. They are prone to exaggerate. Any story they'll tell you is at another level. They are disorganized. They are hot-tempered. And they are prone to unfaithfulness. They may be weak-willed. In finances, they are undisciplined with money and they spend anyhow. They are unconstrained and usually overspend. They can be poor even with good opportunities. Uh, they are angered easily, but also forgive very quickly. They are disorganized spiritually and can be very carnal and fleshly. They lose interest easily and can be unfaithful and weak-willed, especially if their wives are uninteresting. They are untidy, they throw their things about, and they are often not clean. They can enter and leave a relationship easily. The sanguine will throw his things everywhere. And the melancholic person will collect all the things and arrange it line by line and color by color. Melancholic will iron all his things on, on Thursday for the next week. I often wonder why. But the sanguine will take it as and when he goes along. Amen. Sanguines, the women are also talkative. They are messy housekeepers. When they start to tidy the wardrobe, they will not finish because they are easily overwhelmed by work. I've said a lot about cholerics. 
They are great providers, they are achievers, they are successful. They are very poor in emotions and can be often very insensitive. They tell you the truth even when it hurts and they don't care your reaction. They are not discouraged by problems, but rather energized by problems. And problems drive them to find solutions. They have a dogged determination, which usually allows them to succeed where others have failed, because others become discouraged and quit, whereas the choleric doggedly keeps pushing ahead. They are often born leaders, known as SNLs, strong natural leaders. They seek useful and productive values in life. If he's a Christian, he's usually a very dedicated one. They are very open and honest, sometimes to a fault. They don't sympathize easily with others and do not naturally show or express affection. So you will say, I want somebody who will hold me, who will this, a choleric has not thought about it. <laughs> and you feel he's mean, but he really doesn't have it within him and has to learn it. His most serious weakness is anger. They can be extremely hostile people. They use their wrath as a weapon to get what they want because they come to realize that other people are usually afraid of their strong outbursts. They willfully cause pain to others and may enjoy it. Their wife is usually afraid of them and they tend to terrify their children. If you have a spirit-controlled temperament, some of these weaknesses will not be there. They are door slammers, table pounders, and horn blowers. Any person who gets in their way or retards their progress or fails to perform up to the level of their expectation bears the brunt of their wrath. Choleric tend to carry grudges for a long time and they fall prey to ulcers by the time they are 40, often. They are sarcastic and can make scathing remarks which can wither the insecure or devastate the less combative. They usually leave a path of damaged psyches and fractured egos because the other temperament types wilt under their treatment. <clears throat> but if you have a choleric wife, they are take charge women. They will tell everyone else what to do and they are commanding in their style. They shake things up and they make things happen. They are very energetic and outgoing and always up to something new. They can be bossy and overly domineering. They are often considered a threat by other men and resented and judged by other women who tend to want to cut her down to size. The choleric woman believes she can do whatever she sets her mind to do. She's got nerve that she can be used in powerful ways for good. No matter what the obstacles, she will hold firmly to her belief and she can do it. They are determined. They often struggle after leaving the workplace to stay home with their children because they think there's nothing specific to accomplish with housework. Nothing is ever finished. This is because they thrive on the battle-to-battle -battle challenge. 
and challenge to challenge, conquest to conquest routine of the workplace. They notice wrongs and injustices of life and feel compelled to set things right. They are the ones who crusade for change. They are productive, open, honest, effective disciplinarians. If your mother is a colleague, she's a dis effective and a forceful woman with many goals in mind. Weaknesses, they are often unpopular. They are mean, they get angry quickly. They are self-interest, they are self-centered because they are just interested in themselves and their projects. They are impulsive, they are workaholics, and they are not often very domesticated as wives. They are frank and have sharp tongues. They have a hot temper, and they may be very unforgiving towards their husband. They may be so active at home, pursuing countless activities, that her spouse may feel unwanted. She may even find activities to do in the night. They don't take time for real conversation, and they are easily threatened by questions. The choleric woman is usually not very popular because other males feel threatened by her, and she's often resented and judged by other women. Hello? Melancholic husband, sensitive. They like the fine arts, good music, faithful but don't make friends easily. Seldom push themselves to meet other people. Dependable of all the temperaments because of their perfectionist tendencies. They are hard to please because they are perfectionists. They have a strong desire to be loved by others. They are analytical and diagnose accurately the obstacles and dangers of any project. They have a part in planning. This makes them not so enthusiastic to start a new project. They may occasionally produce some great work of art, but such accomplishments are followed by great bouts of depression. They find their greatest meaning in life through personal sacrifice and usually choose a difficult vocation. No temperament has so much natural potential when energized by the Holy Spirit. He can fulfill his potential, thinking of the positive aspects of life and by being a thankful praiser. He may be rich because of self-sufficiency and hard work. They are good listeners. They are very tidy and will impose it on you. They are so consumed with looking for the perfect partner that they may be slow in choosing one. Hmm, so that's the melancholic. They find it difficult to forgive. They are very choosy about dressing, colors, and what to eat. They are constantly arranging things. All right. And phlegmatics, I've told you. They can make a crowd of people shake with laughter and yet never smile sometimes. They are capable of seeing something humorous in others and their actions and so maintain a positive approach to life. They have a retentive memory and are capable of being a fine imitator, usually mixed fun of the other temperament kinds. The te phlegmatic tends to be a spectator in life and tries not to get very involved with the activities of others. 
They are not easy to motivate past their usual daily routine. The phlegmatic will not volunteer for leadership on his own, but when it is forced on him, he proves to be a very capable leader. He acts as a natural peacemaker. Okay, so these are the traits of the various temperaments. Shafibin, is it at this stage they should do the test? Have they had enough to understand? <laughs> or we should finish? Ah, okay. They can do it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I thought so too. So, um, the temperament and sex. Let me do that and then. The temperament and sex, page 185. The sanguine husband and sex. He's so responsive, it does not take much time to turn him on. <laughs> He's so open about everything he does that his wife is always aware of his mood. He has a great appetite for everything, including lovemaking. He must have very few hang-ups about sex. He usually enjoys it. Sex, like food, is one of the important things in life to them. That's sanguines. They are usually reluctant to take no for an answer when they want food or sex. They can easily be hurt and feel deflated if his wife does not respond to his gestures of love. They may be more easily unfaithful if not sexually satisfied because... The conquest of another woman is important to satisfy his ego, and he finds lonely, unfulfilled women easy prey to his charm. He's weak-willed and emotionally excitable, and is therefore open to the unscrupulous woman. The sanguine wife and sex, it's important to her. She's unrestrained about sex, she flows. <laughs> she will do almost anything sexually if she's taught, she overcomes most sexual inhibitions and hang-ups and can become aggressive. She's not cadaveric in sex. She doesn't behave like a dead body. A lot of men feel comfortable in her presence. Her charming personality makes her a hit for all types of men. And in her naivety, she can turn them on without knowing. She usually thinks she's just being friendly. She does not take too much coaxing to get into the mood to make love. Usually maintains a good attitude about sex in spite of what she might have heard before marriage. She can be sexually aggressive and do the inviting. She has a tremendous desire to please her husband and with a reasonable amount of encouragement will usually succeed in this area of marriage provided her partner does not hammer away at her faults in other areas. The choleric husband and sex. He does not indulge in much foreplay. He goes straight to the point. He just wants it quickly, and then he's on his way. He soon learns, however, that he has to be tender and loving. He appears to be a great lover on the surface. Unable to lavish affection on his spouse and impatient, this makes adjustment difficult for the wife. He's likely to take his wife into the bedroom without the slightest sex education himself. 
This is because he's usually impulsive and thinks that things will work out anyway. He learns quickly, is practical, and will therefore make necessary changes to lovemaking. If he finds that affection is exciting and that watching the woman he loves respond to his love is extremely fulfilling, he will go for it. The choleric wife in sex. She can either make her husband very happy or unhappy sexually. If she has had a good upbringing, teaching, and parents' influence, she's exciting and creative. If she has had bad teaching, molestation by a parent, an adult, or other traumatic experiences, she's very difficult sexually because she's an opinionated individual. If she observes a warm, loving relationship between her parents while growing up, she will enter marriage expecting to enjoy lovemaking. And because cholerics usually achieve what they set out to do, she and her husband will not be disappointed in their sexual life. If she has been raised in an unhappy home or environment, has been molested, and we've said that, she may encounter serious difficulty in relating properly to her husband. This is because the choleric forms such strong opinions about things that once she has that idea, it is difficult or impossible for them to change their minds. Since choleric wives are not usually given to open affection, they may stifle their husband's advances before their own motto rolls into action. If not spirit-filled, the choleric wife may emasculate her husband, that is, make him nothing, by dominating and leading him in everything, including sex. If she isn't interested in sex herself, she and her usually phlegmatic husband may go for long periods without sex. The choleric wife must not interpret a phlegmatic husband's passivity about sex to mean he, had, he enjoys abstinence. He is actually expecting her to take the lead. In the end, an explosion will occur that would have a very serious and undesirable effect on the marriage. The melancholic husband and sex, he is a supreme idealist. He usually goes into marriage without sex education because he believes the ideal will happen. If his wife is loving, amorous and exciting and very expressive, things may work out fine. If he marries someone as naive as he is, he and his wife may return from the honeymoon depressed. <laughs> a shaky sex life can make a melancholic husband very unhappy and depressed. Their depression will turn off their wives. Melancholics usually find it difficult to seek counseling and wait until their marriage is almost breaking to get help because they find it difficult to approach anybody. Hmm. Where are we? Number seven, okay. The melancholic husband is able to express true love more than any other temperament. He's usually a loyal and faithful partner unless he indulges in impure thoughts that lead to promiscuity. When the melancholic loves his wife, he will almost overextend himself in thoughtfulness, kindness, and emotion. He's usually very romantic. He does the things that delight the romantic heart of a woman, like playing soft music, dimming lights, using perfume. <laughs> his analytical nature makes him learn quickly what pleases his wife, and then he enjoys bringing her fulfillment. 
If everything goes well for them, they make great lovers. But since life does not turn out perfectly, and the melancholic is such a perfectionist, he may also refuse to accept anything less than perfection. Little things like dirty dishes in the sink or a messy floor can turn a melancholic off sexually. Hmm. He's likely to interpret as rejection his wife's lack of immediate response to sex when he initiates lovemaking. If his wife tries to play a little hard to get sex, he's likely to think she does not desire him and may give up before she can reveal her true feelings. Hmm. A melancholic wife and sex. It's an unpredictable love partner because she has the greatest of all mood swings. Today she's happy, tomorrow she's not. <laughs> On some occasions she can be as exciting and stimulating as any sanguine. On other occasions she has absolutely no interest in anything, including love. At times she may meet her husband at the door and sweep him off his feet right into the bedroom, but at other times she may ignore his arrival completely. Mood swings. She is the supreme romantic, and her moods are as apparent as the noonday sun. When in the mood for love, she resorts to dinner by candlelight, soft music, and heavy perfume. She's capable of enjoying ecstatic love at heights that would choke other temperaments, but she does not do that frequently. To her, quality in sex life is preferable to quantity. Amen? Of all the temperaments, she's the one who gives love as a reward for good behavior. And no man enjoys that. She can be excessively religious about sex, especially if her mother had a problem in this area. She may use religious arguments and Bible verses to excuse her sexual abstinence. She will always say, I'm praying. Abstain to pray. Come together quickly. She will not read that part. Probably the real reason for her sexual abstinence may be that she has a fixed idea before marriage that sex is not a good thing. She may hardly give herself the opportunity to learn that sex is good and desirable. Is usually interested in sex when she wants to get pregnant and have children. Seemingly little things can be turned into huge problems for the melancholic wife. For example, her husband's inability to balance the checkbook, failure to run an errand, neglect to bath can be a major problem. This may thoroughly upset her and send her into quiet revenge. She has to realize that she's cheating herself out of both the enjoyment of lovemaking and the loving approval of her husband. She has the potential of being an exciting and fulfilling love partner if her weaknesses do not overpower her strengths. Amen. The phlegmatic husband does not say much about the bedroom life, is closed-mouthed concerning his personal life. Most comments about his intimate life will come from his angry spouse, who is usually also very biased. Usually will have little trouble gaining the love of his wife because he rarely embarrasses or insults her. Sarcasm is just not his way, and he will usually not embarrass her publicly or say anything derogatory. Since he rarely gets angry or creates irritation, 
He usually extinguishes his partner's fire by a soft answer before bedtime. <laughs> his wife may soon feel unloved because he does not assume initiative in the bedroom. The wife has to be heard even in the bedroom. So she loses respect for him because he does not assert his manhood. He may produce resentment in his wife because he's stingy, politely stubborn, and self-indulgent, which is equal to being selfish. Usually finds it difficult to talk about anything. I mean, cannot talk about real issues, what he's going through, he's not able. Okay, and therefore does not tell his wife what he finds exciting about lovemaking. He will silently endure less enjoyable relations with his wife for years and therefore rob both and his wife of many ecstatic sexual experiences. Last in this chapter, the phlegmatic wife and sex will usually give in to her more forceful mates than to create turmoil. It's easily satisfied and will often turn her attention to her children if trouble arises between her husband and herself. She rarely initiates lovemaking, but will always never turn away her husband because she wants to please him. Her lovemaking is greatly affected by fear and anxiety. She may fear pregnancy, disclosure, embarrassment, and a host of other real and imagined dilemmas. She can easily be afraid that her husband may lose respect for her if she appears too eager or forward in lovemaking. She must learn to create and maintain interest in her personal appearance, like her hair, attire, and weight. She's lazy about everything, including her appearance, okay? Number six, her disorganization may cause such resentment in her husband that it may spill into their bedroom life. Number seven, her husband must endeavor to be a strong, gentle, and thoughtful lover who learns how a woman functions best and takes time to arouse her to orgasm. Once she learns the art of lovemaking, her desire for the experience will overpower her and tendency to be passive, thus making her an exciting partner. Nine, her husband must be someone who verbally assures her of her worth and his love so that she can draw courage to overcome her fears. She must learn to overcome her inability to speak about the way she feels and communicate with her spouse about their sex life. Amen. Well, this is a chapter that a pastor ignored for his church member. And I didn't know, but the church member came from another church. Two weeks of marriage, turmoil. So as I listened to her stories, I realized that if she knew about temperaments, she would handle it better. So I asked her, what curriculum was used for your marriage counseling? And she said, Lady Reverend, Though I'm not in this church, Bishop Dag's book was used. And I said, if Bishop Dag's book was used, did you not learn about temperaments? No, never heard of it. I said, why? So when we got there, our pastor said it's not necessary, so we skipped it. How is it not necessary? It even explains all our somewayness. 
and our strengths and our weaknesses and allows us to work on them. When you read on your own, you will see how you can be a spiritual sanguine, a spiritual melancholy. That's the next chapter after what we read. You know, all this is so helpful. It brings light. You know, you walk in darkness till the light comes on. And knowledge is power. The Bible says, my people perish for lack of... Look at even these types of marriages. A lot of you don't know that there's any such thing. And a lot of you feel that the important part about the marriage is the color scheme, the cake, and the what? The bridal train. But just knowledge opens us up to light and sets us free. So it is important. Knowledge may be in a book, and unless you read it, you will never know it. So please... It is time to follow a definite curriculum. It is time to tell your people when they are coming to bring notebooks. Because when you bring a notebook and you write, you remember. It's not even that you will refer to it all, but you remember. And then later on, even if it's your model marriage book, you can write in it. I write a lot every time I'm preaching my model marriage books. And everywhere I have gone in the past, when I finish, they take the book away. So I don't have the book. So this time, I'm not going to give the, the book away. It's the same book, but maybe I've added a few things, expatiated on this. Uh, then the people say, Lady Rebecca, we have your book. And I've always given it to them, including my clothes. But now I've stopped. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So before I came today, I just sensed that we should have a question and answer time. And then Bishop Fabian just came up and said, he thinks we should continue with the Q&A. So... I will invite him up and then he will show us when and what. Wow, please put your hands together for Lady Reverend Adelaide Heward Mills. I tell you, she has poured herself out to us. Please show some love. It was great having you today. To find out more about the resources available by Adelaide Heward Mills, please visit the Vision Bookshop at the Kodesh, North Kaneshi, or meet her on Facebook at Reverend Mrs. Adelaide Heward Mills. For prayer and counseling, please call 0243-187-900. You can also drop us an email at honeyonmylips at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, God richly bless you.